Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. On the night Jesus was to go to the cross, he gathered his best friends together in an upper room, and in that room they shared a meal. And then he also prayed a prayer over them. And in that prayer, we hear what Jesus' greatest desire and what his heart was for his disciples and those who would follow him once he left. The prayer is all about oneness and unity in the church. That's Jesus' biggest desire for us, that we would have unity. Now, what I find interesting is right in the middle of this prayer, which you can find in John 17, Jesus also prays these words, which I have on the screen. He prays, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, he's talking to the Father, but that you protect them, his disciples, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now, I've always found this little prayer in the middle of the bigger prayer to be one of the more mysterious prayers and wonder, what does that have to do with unity? The way we often talk about that is Jesus is praying that we be in the world, but not of the world. Well, as we have been making our way as a church through the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what we do together. We walk through books of the Bible in a series we've called A Better Way. I now understand how these two prayers relate. You see, oftentimes where our unity is most challenged are in those very issues of being in the world, but not of the world. What do I mean? Well, what Jesus is praying against, in my opinion, is the twin errors of completely separating from culture or completely engaging or embracing culture. And so you've probably seen this. On one side, you have Christians who say, I'm going to restrict myself completely from culture. I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not going to listen to certain bands. I'm not going to movies. I'm not even going to talk to non-Christians because I want to separate myself from the world so much. And they do that through rules and moralities in order to distinguish themselves from non-Christians. But Jesus prays, my prayer is not that you would leave the world, that you would completely disengage and disassociate yourself from culture. In fact, I have placed you in a very specific place. Yet, on the other hand, Jesus prayed, Father, protect them from the evil one. In other words, I'm praying that they would not compromise to the culture in which I have placed them. In other words, the way that we live in certain areas, friends, is going to be different than the world that we have been placed in to live. And so there's these two extremes. Jesus prayed against both. I'm to be in the world, but I'm not to be worldly. I'm to participate in the culture, in the city, in the society that God has placed me in. And yet there are times as God's people that we have to draw the line and say, I can't go that far. Now, why am I saying this? Well, because as we've been walking through 1 Corinthians, perhaps you've noticed that this is what this church is constantly fighting about. Where are the lines? And it's causing tremendous division in this church. In this letter, we have some, seen some parts of the church claiming, I am completely free to do whatever I want. And then we have other parts of the church saying, no, you're crossing the line. You're living in ways that God has not told you to live. And so we've seen this clash in 1 Corinthians on several issues already. For example, we saw it on how are we as Christians supposed to use our bodies? Some people in the church are saying, I can use my body any way I want. I'm free to do that. Other people in the church went to the opposite extreme and said, no, our bodies are evil. We shouldn't use them for anything. We've seen this church split on the issues of power. 
Some people believe if they're placed in a position of power, they're able to use that to their advantage. Other people are saying, no, that's not the way of Jesus. We've seen other issues as well, and today we come to yet another one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to see these two parties clash again, and the issue is over whether or not Christians should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, before you completely check out on me right now, because you're thinking, oh, I knew this is what the Bible is, right? It's about stuff that doesn't even matter anymore today. Here's what I would just want to say. Two things. First of all, this was a gigantic issue in the early church. And I'll explain why in a little bit here. But the second issue is what we get here may not relate specifically to us today. However, the truths that are hidden in 1 Corinthians 8 are timeless. On these issues that we come across all the time that I am calling either gray issues or disputable matters. Those things about being in the world but not of the world. Issues like should Christians drink alcohol? Should Christians go trick-or-treating? Should Christians listen to secular music? Should we get tattoos? Should we watch rated R movies? I mean, you've all heard them, right? The list goes on and on and on. All of these things have found their way onto different people's Christian no-no lists. And so the question for us today is, well, how do we know when we're compromising to culture? And how do we know when we're completely disengaging from culture? And more importantly than any of that, if you're following on your notes today, here's what we want to ask How do we keep unity in the disputable matters? How do we keep unity in the disputable matters? And so I want to encourage you, as we do each week, to grab your Bible if you brought it with you, and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1 together. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you're a guest with us today, please know we have some Bibles available in the seat underneath you, somewhere near you there. I'd love for you to grab one of those out and follow along with us. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, we like to say this often, we'd love to give you that as a gift. So take that home with you today. But you can find this on page 928 of those black Bibles. Now before we look at the text, I really think we need to set a bit of context in order to understand the dilemma that this early church is facing and how it relates to being in the world but not of the world. And the first thing I just want to say is that Paul's going to talk about this issue, food, sacrifice to idols, all the way through chapter 10. And the reason for that is it's more complicated than we think at first glance. You see, it's actually a threefold dilemma for these Christians in Corinth because there were three ways that you might find yourself eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. First, if you're following on your notes there, is you could eat meat sacrificed in a pagan ceremony. As we've talked about, Corinth was like the hub of idolatry and the worship of false gods, and so there were temples everywhere. And sometimes you would be asked to bring an animal to one of these temples and you would sacrifice it. And as part of the ceremony, you would eat the meat there. So that would be one way that these Christians could be engaged in eating meat. A second way was at these temples, there were sort of like these restaurants. The way I would picture it for you today is if you go downtown and you come to the old state capitol, can you picture that in your mind right now? And around the old state capitol, there's all these restaurants that you can go to. That's kind of how the temples were set up in this day. And so these families might bring their sacrifice and they might engage in some sort of ceremony, but then they'd still have all this leftover meat. And so they'd invite all their friends over and they'd have this big feast at this, on the grounds of the temple. And so that would be the second way that you could eat meat sacrificed to idols there at a non-Christian's feast. You might be invited to a non-Christian's feast. 
And then a third way a Christian might eat sacrificed food to idols was eating meat purchased from the market. So that's number three. I even created a fancy diagram for you just so you get all the complications in your mind here. Are you ready? Wow. And I really do think this goes from greater to lesser here. I think you can probably see that as well, right? Meat sacrificed in a temple ceremony, meat eaten at a non-Christian's feast that they've invited you to, or meat bought at a market. What do we do? What do we do in these situations? Well, Paul begins to answer that, and he says, number one, in the first way, they're actually partaking of eating meat at a ceremony at a temple. The Bible is crystal clear here. Black and white issue, it is completely forbidden. No Christian is to enter into a pagan religious ceremony and partake of the meat eaten there. That is what the Jerusalem Council says in Acts 15. If you're reading the New Testament with us, you'll come across that this week. It's what Jesus says in Revelation to some of the churches. You don't partake in that. It's what Paul is going to say at the very end of this in chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. In fact, let's read that. Look, that, look at that on the screen. It says, no. But the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Again, Paul just says, these two things don't mix. Like fire and water, worshiping Satan and worshiping God don't go together. That's idolatry, and idolatry is always wrong. So number one, you don't eat meat sacrificed at a ceremony at a pagan temple. Let me skip to the other one about meat purchased at a marketplace. What does Paul say about that? Well, he gives the following advice in verses 25 through 26 of chapter 10. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything in it. In other words, you can purchase any meat you want at the market. That's not even an issue here. But finally, we come to that second dilemma, the one right in the middle there which is whether or not a Christian should eat the meat at a non-believer's feast that they've been invited to. Now, per personally, I believe this is the issue that Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 8. There's some debate about that. But I think already you can probably see why this is a gray area in the church or a disputable matter, right? You can see the two sides. Some Christians are saying, we can't eat that. That's demon meat. It was literally just sacrificed to an idol. We can't adhere to that. We can't participate in this. And then other people are saying, um, it's just leftover meat. Besides, it would be rude for us to ignore the invitation of our friends to this feast. And so you can see the two parties and where they split here on this issue. It's a disputable matter. And so let's look at the 1 Corinthians 8 and how Paul addresses this. And like I said, at the end, we're going to pull away four principles that we can still apply to our lives today. Before we do that, would you mind bowing your head and praying with me? Oh, Lord, even though this particular issue is not an issue in the American church, at least, there are plenty of issues that can cause division. And we know that your heart is for oneness and unity. And you've given us a book, you've given us a letter written 2,000 years ago that shows us how to do that. And so I pray that we would be humble today, that we'd be willing to hear your word, 
for the sake of your church, for the sake of your people, and for the sake of your name. Help us to understand what unity looks like even in these disputable matters. And together we all prayed, amen. Well, can we start by reading verse one together on our notes out loud there? It says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. In this verse, Paul is quoting something from that party who believes that they're pretty much free to do anything. And they're basically saying to Paul, we possess all knowledge. And if we've seen one thing about the Corinthians, what do they pride themselves on more than anything else? Their knowledge. They love that they're knowledgeable people. So most likely, he's quoting from the group that believed that since they knew that meat was harmless, they were free to eat at their non-Christian Christians feast. They had the right knowledge. It's just meat. So what else needs to be said? Well, as you can see, Paul has more to say here. And already he begins, if you're following, Paul contrasts arrogant knowledge with edifying love. He says one of those things is going to destroy people. The other thing is going to build people up. In fact, look at what he says in verse 2. This must have been a gut punch. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. I think what Paul is saying here is you people who claim to have all this knowledge, your knowledge isn't doing you any good because true knowledge would actually lead you to loving others and loving God. You care more about being right than you do about loving the people God has placed in your midst. Some of you have experienced this before. Literally, you can translate what Paul is saying there as know-it-alls. You're a bunch of know-it-alls. Have you ever been around a know-it-all? Is it fun to be around a know-it-all? No, because you really don't care what a know-it-all knows because you know they don't care about you. So Paul says, listen, knowledge is in everything. In fact, sometimes when we're arrogant about what we know, it can actually lead someone to destruction. He says, continuing in verse 4, in the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, again, he quotes them here, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Again, quoting from this party that says, I'm free to do whatever I want. An idol is nothing. There's only one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. In other words, you're right. You have the right knowledge. There is but one true God. And so idols really are nothing, although Paul will go on to say later that what's behind idols is not nothing. But perhaps there are more important things than just knowing a few things to be true. Perhaps knowledge isn't always enough. And so in sum, if I'm the party right now that wrote Paul and basically said, listen, we're free to do anything. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Because Paul is acknowledging, you're right. You know some things that are true. You know that there is only one true God and an idol in and of itself is nothing. It's a man-made object. But Paul's not done. Starting in verse 7, he wants to use a hypothetical example and play out where this knowledge might actually lead the church. Look at verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So Paul sets up an example of a Christian firmly convinced there is no other God but the one true God freely going to a meal at a non-believer's feast who was serving meat sacrificed to an idol. But in his example, Paul also mentions there's another believer in this church with a weak conscience. Now, we don't like the word weak. So I think what Paul is more talking about is a younger Christian, someone who had just come out of idolatry worship. I mean, they lived in this city And they've heard about Christ, and they've dedicated their lives to Christ. And so the idea for them of eating this meat, it would have huge associations with worshiping false gods, which is what they just came out of. If he were writing to us today, the example he might use is a new believer who's come out of the wild party scene with lots of drugs and alcohol, being being invited by another Christian to have lunch at a bar. Or someone who was saved from a life of sex addiction or pornography being invited by other Christians to go see a sexually explicit movie. Now, are those things wrong? Is having lunch at a bar wrong? Is going to an R-rated movie wrong? One part of the church is saying, no, I'm free to do whatever I want. It's their problem if they have a hard time with that. And the other side of the church is, oh, you're crossing the line. You're becoming worldly in those things. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are of no worse if we do not eat meat, and no better if we do. Now would you read verse 9 on your notes out loud with me? It says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. This is going to be very important later as we pull out those four principles, but understand what Paul says here. He says, food in and of itself is neutral. Money in and of itself, is neutral. For some people then at this church, eating at the home or at a feast of a non-Christian, it's no problem. They understand that food in and of itself is neutral, yet for other people, it would completely damage their relationship with Christ. Now the first people might be thinking to themselves, well, that's their problem. That's their problem. I have the right to do this. Paul says, be careful how you view your rights because it may harm another brother or sister in Christ. In fact, he goes on in verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. If you're on your notes, Paul shows that knowledge isn't always the better way. It's not always the better way. In fact, sometimes our knowledge about something can lead someone else to fall. In this case, these new believers may be tempted to go back to the life they had just left behind. They have not come to the place in their life where they can say, this is just a piece of meat. For them, it's still a means of worshiping false gods, resulting in a violation of their conscience. And so I'll use our example again. It would be a violation of a conscience for someone who had come out of the party scene to then go have lunch at this bar. It wouldn't be a great decision because they know that could lead them down into a slippery slope. 
Paul takes this even up a notch in verse 12. He says, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. When I'm not looking out for my weaker, younger brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm actually sinning against Christ. He's placed us together as the body of Christ. If you're on your notes, misusing our freedom harms others and is a sin against Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. That's incredible to me. Paul is willing to become a vegetarian for the sake of these younger believers. Now friends, as I said, here's what I wanna do now. I wanna step back from this text and offer you what I see as four timeless principles that we can apply to any of these kind of gray, disputable matters that we come up against, and they come up all the time. And I'm gonna do that in the form of four questions we can ask ourselves when we're faced with these things. However, before I get to the questions, I just need to say something very important here. I hope you've seen in this text that this does not apply to every and every situation where someone might be offended by your behavior or your belief. That's the extreme example of someone who is completely disengaged from culture. And so using 1 Corinthians 8, I might say, there were probably people in the church saying, you can't even eat meats at the market. You can't even do that. And to that, Paul says, no, we're not going to that extreme. I remember when I was young, I was told, you shouldn't play any kind of card games. You know, because it's associated with gambling. And I said, um, actually, we're still going to play hearts and spades as a family, because that's, that's fun for us. And so we're not caving in to the most legalistic person in the church. What Paul has in mind here is how we view younger believers Weaker brothers and sisters, weaker just meaning, you know, newer in the faith and thinking about these issues that might cause them to stumble or to fall. And so the first question we always need to consider if you're on your notes there is, can I do it? Can I do it? In other words, the first thing we determine is whether or not this is actually a gray issue. Perhaps it's actually a black and white issue. And the only way we know that is by looking at Scripture. The Bible is the word of God. It is the law of God. The Bible tells us how God wants us to live as his people. It's the path to joy and freedom. And on many issues, it's incredibly clear, isn't it? Do this. Don't do this. I've used this example before. Some of you have said it's helpful. I hope it still is. But you could be driving down the road today and you would see this. Tell me what that means. You don't pass. You stay in the lane. The people of this city have looked at this road, and this is a dangerous area. So you stay in that lane. You don't cross. Black and white, stay there. And in the same way, there are many double yellow line issues that we come up against in Scripture. Adultery, for example, always wrong. Black and white issue in Scripture. Drunkenness. Black and white, double yellow line issue. And yet, we could be driving down that same road, and later we come across this. What does that mean? means be cautious, but if you're able to, you feel free to pass. And so listen, having a glass of wine at dinner, is that a double yellow line issue? It's not. It's a, a passing lane issue, and there's all kinds of these things. 
But the first question we ask is, can I do it? Is this actually a passing lane issue? Sometimes we make double yellow line issues into passing lane issues. Or if you're on your notes there, is it something that violates the Bible? Partaking in a feast by being invited from from some non-Christian friends, what kind of an issue is that? Paul's saying it's a passing lane issue. Be careful. But it's not black and white. It is black and white. You don't participate in that pagan ceremony. But this issue, be careful. Can I do it? Does it violate the Bible? If I do this, will I be violating the teachings of Scripture, the law of God, the word of God, the commandments of God? And if the Bible says don't do it, don't do it. There's a lot of positive commands in the Bible as well, right? Jesus says do this. Then we do that. The Bible is our compass. That's how we determine how we live. But if the Bible doesn't forbid us to do something, here's the question. This is where the tension is. Am I just free to do it? Am I free to do whatever at that point? And Paul says, well, I'd like you to consider a second question. And if you're on your notes, that second question is, should I do it? You probably know there's a big difference between whether you can do something and whether you should do something. What do I mean? Well, in this passage, Paul asks us to consider, if you're on your notes, does it violate my conscience? He uses this word a lot in this text, conscience. You see, in addition to Scripture, God has given us a conscience. This is amazing to me, part of being made in the image of God, which is what all of us are. We've been given a conscience. A conscience is sort of like our internal compass telling each person what is right or wrong. We are born with a conscience. Your kids have a conscience. You may not think so, but trust me, it's there. But for a human conscience, like a compass, it can be a pretty sensitive instrument, right? It can be led astray pretty easily. It can malfunction. It can get trapped in a magnetic field and be pulled off course, for example, In high school, my compass was constantly being challenged with this thought, if everybody else is doing it, it must be okay. So I wonder, well, is just because everybody else is doing it, is it okay? And Paul says in this text, no, it's not okay for you. Is it okay for all the Christians at the church of Corinth to eat meat that had been sacrificed at one of their non-Christian friends' feasts? The answer is, it's not okay for all of them. For some, it would be. For some, it's not. What we have to understand when it comes to gray issues in the Christian life is, what may be the line for me may not be the line for you. Can I just say that again? Because I think this is where disunity comes all the time. What my conscience says is not okay, your conscience might say is okay. And I'm talking about those passing lane issues here right now. So I've used this example before, I'll use it again. Many years ago, my wife and I just decided we're not going to watch rated R movies anymore. Our conscience told us we just don't want to do that. It's not leading me to a place of loving Christ more deeply. I'm getting images in my head that I don't want to have there. And so we just stopped doing that. Now let me ask you, is watching rated R movies a double yellow line issue? It's okay, you can try to answer this. It's not. And so if I'm at the movie theater and I see one of you walking into a rated R movie, I can't be going like, oh, I judge them, those sinners. That's judgmentalism. That's something God forbids us to do. But for me to walk into that movie would be a sin against my conscience. 
This is something I've decided. I know that it's a stumbling block potentially for me. And we need to apply that to all gray areas of our life. While one person in their conscience may be okay with having a glass of wine, for another Christian, you just don't go there. Because you know it'll lead you down a slippery slope you don't want to go. So for them to sin and going against their conscience, for some Christians celebrating Halloween, it's no big deal. It's just a cultural phenomenon. For other people, they go, oh, it's a big deal. There's evil behind that and, and other things. And so we just say, well, what does your conscience say about that? If it's not a double yellow line issue, what does your conscience say about that? Again, to be very clear here, Paul's not talking about catering to the most legalistic person in the church. He's talking about protecting weaker believers in the church. And here's what I want to say to you. We are all weaker in some areas of life. You may not like to hear that. You might like to hear, oh, I'm way above any of that. None of us are beyond being tempted past what we can handle. And so you have to learn to say, you know what? I just can't go there. I can't do that. I can't hang out with those people. I can't watch that. I can't be alone with him. I can't be alone with her. To me, it's a weakness. It's just not good for me. It's going to lead me down a slippery slope that I don't want to go. And so I'll ask you, friends, if you're on your notes, do I know where my weaknesses are? I'll bet you do. And God's wisdom to us is to say, know the line and don't cross it. That might not be right for everybody, but it's right for you. So those are the first two questions we put up on this template, right? Can I do it and should I do it? And I believe if we just live by those, our church would be much more unified. And by church, I mean capital C church. But Paul wants to take this even further. He says there's two more questions for us to consider. The third question is, what does maintaining unity look like in this situation? This is way beyond can I or should I. In fact, this moves beyond just I. We move from me, myself, and I to we and us. The heart of the problem in this church in Corinth is the failure of the knowledgeable believers to not only just look out for their own interests, but for the interests of others. And so by flaunting their freedom and eating this meat, they were weakening the fellowship of the church. And here's what Paul wants them to consider. What's more important to you? Listen to this. Are your individual rights more important than the community God has placed you in? I mean, can you believe this was written 2,000 years ago? Because this could be written to our culture right now. If we love one thing as Americans, it's my rights. It's my body. It's my life. You don't tell me how to live it. In fact, we believe that as long as I'm not endangering somebody, I can pretty much do whatever I want. We might say, if I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols... And so what if these people have a hard time with it? Let them deal with it. It's my right. Anything that hinders our rights is seen as bad today. But as Christians, we understand, if you're following on your notes there, that the use of freedom is never just individual. It's not just about me. It's communal. Though people would love to believe that their actions do not affect those around them, to believe that is naive. If you're a parent, you know this immediately. My wife will sometimes say, after my son says something he shouldn't say, it's like, I wonder where he heard that. 
Oh, it's not just me living my individual life. I'm having an impact on the people God has placed me in community with. We believe that's true in our families, in our nuclear families, and we believe that's true in the family God has placed us here at Cherry Hills. You see, Christ did not die to save solitary individuals. He died to save a collective people. That's called his church. And so our rights are never exercised in isolation because they always have a bearing on the community God has placed us in. So it's not always just a question of what I can and cannot do. It's a matter of what's best for the community God has placed me in. Believe it or not, friends, Paul takes it up one notch even further for us to consider a final question, which is what does love look like in this situation? Not just what does unity look like, but what does it look like to actually love somebody in these gray, disputable matters? Friends, this theme has been coming up all over the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you've been a part of this series, we see it again and again and again, right? The Corinthians value knowledge being right. And Paul is writing again and again to show them a better way. That should be the title of a message series, I think. And that better way is the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is love. In verses 1 through 3, Paul said to them, you may have the right knowledge on certain things, but you don't have the knowledge that matters. Because your knowledge is not changing the way that you're treating other people in the church. Yeah, you're free in Christ. But get this. Because of your freedom, you're free to not exercise your freedom. That's pretty good. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Because of your freedom, you're free to not always have to exercise your freedom. That's true freedom. If you're following on your notes there, we're free to give away our freedom out of love for others laying down our lives for the benefit of another person. Hmm. And see, regardless of our differing stances on the gray issues of life, you know we've been called to obey one black and white, double yellow line command in Scripture. Love one another. That's not a passing lane. That's a double yellow line. And so in each situation we come up against in these disputable matters, I want to say, Lord, what does love look like? What does love look like here? For Paul, it's not a question of what we can get away with. It's a question of how we can best use our freedom for the sake of others. And that may require giving things you regard as your right up for the sake of winning somebody over or for the sake of preventing them from falling. And so as we close, here's what I would say to you. Paul would argue that true knowledge is loving others the way God has loved us. That's true knowledge. And how did God love us? He set aside his rights. He set aside his freedom. And he went to a cross and laid his life down for you and for me. We can do the same thing with God's help and become the church Jesus prayed we would become. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I'm consistently amazed at how your word is so relevant to us each and every day. 
This morning, we have heard that your heart for your church is oneness and unity, and yet that has not always been true. But we've seen a better way today. Now we have to go about the hard work of actually living it out. And I know for myself, at least, I can't do that in my flesh. I can't do that by myself. But thankfully, that is why you sent your spirit to help us to become these kinds of people. And so if there are issues that I have made double yellow line issues and they're really not, Lord, help me to see that and to have grace. If there are double yellow line issues that I have crossed over, help me to see that in truth. And more than anything, remind us that your desire for us is to be one. Just as you are one. And for that, it sometimes takes laying our lives down for the sake of another. We need your help to do that. We all acknowledge that. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done, for your example. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.